Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Casimer Trials is a contract research organization that's seeking to bring patient and caregiver perspective into the clinical trials process. It's working with drug developers to create endpoints and measures that can provide rigorous and quantifiable means of demonstrating whether an experimental therapy provides meaningful improvements to a patient's quality of life. We spoke to Christine McSherry, co-founder and CEO of Casimer Trials, about the challenges of developing patient-centric outcome measures, how technology is allowing for the capture of real-world evidence, and how Casimer began with a challenge from the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research Director, Janet Woodcock, to a mother and patient advocate concerned over the use of endpoints that could obscure the value of needed drugs to rare disease patients. Christine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your contract research organization, Casimer Trials, your efforts to bring the patient view into the clinical development process, and the impact the way regulators consider whether a rare disease should be approved. Before we get to Casimer, I thought it would be useful to talk about your own journey that, that brought you here. For listeners not familiar with you or your work through the JET Foundation, which you founded, perhaps you can begin with who JET is and, and how you became involved in the world of rare disease. Sure. Well, in 2001, uh, one of my five children, my son named JET, was diagnosed with a rare disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, he was, uh, like I said, five years old at the time, and he looked happy and healthy and was jumping around and um, was a little bit in denial. But, but you know, uh, reality quickly set in when he started falling around the ages of seven or eight years old and um, began to become weaker um, and then lose enough muscle function to be confined to his power chair at the age of 14. Um, I started the organization mostly to raise awareness, and I was hoping to raise enough funding to put a dent in research. But being a nurse um, and, and living through the AIDS crisis, I kind of knew what it was going to take to get a drug through that drug development pipeline and out in time to save Jet's life, and, and I wasn't very optimistic that we were going to be able to do that. So I started building up support for kids with Duchenne, Jet especially, but but for other kids who didn't have four other siblings around them. So um, we developed some camps uh, throughout the country for kids with neuromuscular diseases to attend. 
Um, we developed a lot of programming internally at the organization um, to support families, and, and we really kind of rounded ourselves off, ourselves off as kind of a direct service organization. Um, and during that time, I mentioned camps, during that time, uh, some of the clinical trials were just being started in, in the years uh, 2010, 11, 12. Um, and, of course, you know, as a mom whose son had just stopped walking and approaching his second decade of life, which is when he should die, unfortunately, when most kids um, are not here from Duchenne, um, you know, I, I was watching the trials with a really um, cautious and somewhat optimistic eye. And I did hear about a study that had um, looked like it was having some good results. Um, but there was a lot of um, discussion ar around the study because, number one, it was only 12 patients, and number two, it was using um, a clinical endpoint called the six-minute walk test. And um, having been involved in a, a number of clinical trials, whether they were natural history studies or kind of bone studies, as well as um, another study for another exon skipping drug, I, I, you know, I looked at I looked at the study with a critical eye. But even with my critical eye, I could tell from the data that was being released um, that something was there was some noise in there. There was something happening with those kids. Um, the kids that were treated for 24 weeks in placebo in that study uh, certainly had a decline in the six-minute walk test. And it was clear to me that the other kids that were treated um, in the treated arm. Uh, were stable. You're, you're talking here about Sareptizateplicin? Yep, this is Sareptizateplicin, now called Exondus 51. Um, and so that data came out, I think it was 2012 or 2013. It was released in October of that year. Uh, and it was pretty clear to me, like I said, that there was, there was something happening with those boys. Um, so, of course, I went to Sarepta and I said, can I file a treatment IND? What, what do I have to do to get access to the drug? And um, they really didn't have a path for me to get access. So, I started learning more about the regulatory environment um, and, and a little bit more about FDA um, and having started having conversations within the agency. Um, I, was ended, I ended up joining a group of other advocates, other rare disease advocates who had a a pre-existing meeting with the agency, and I was invited to go along. Um, and at that meeting, uh, I got to tell a little bit of my story, but then also uh, talked to Janet Woodcock. Uh, and Janet uh, heard my concerns about the fact that there might be a drug out there that is working in this study, but yet the clinical endpoint um, isn't reflective of, of any benefit. Um, During the... During the advisory committee meeting for Teplerson, you presented data. You presented data that the Jet Foundation had gathered. What kind of data was this, and, and how was it gathered? And am I correct that the FDA had asked you to gather that data? Yeah, it was kind of in an anecdotal way. Um, we were having a conversation with FDA, with the Division of Neurology, uh, Russ Katz, Bob Temple, and Janet Woodcock, and we kept telling them over and over that the kids were doing better. And they said, okay, but you need to show us. You need to show us in a rigorous way how the kids are doing better. And it was just really kind of happenstance. Um, I picked up my phone and I said, can we take videos on a cell phone? Uh, and Russ Katz just kind of chuckled. And he's like, as, as long as they're not edited, of course you can. 
And I said, okay. And that was kind of the start to that study that I did present during the Sarepta Adcom. Um, I ended up going out and doing a study uh, on about 15 of the boys, uh, all original 12 boys, as well as some additional boys who had been put into a safety study. Um, and what I did is I went out and did um, kind of retrospective qualitative interviews. Uh, and I asked these kids what was different now in their lives that after drugs than, than what had happened before. And I got these really kind of anecdotal but really nice stories. And all the stories were, were done. Um, they were all videotaped. Uh, and it was a story like a, a little boy in California who said to me, um, well, now I can walk my dog. And I said, well, what happened before? And he said, well, when I used to walk my dog, um, I wasn't strong enough, and my dog would pull me over, and I would fall on the ground. And I said, well, that's interesting. He said, yes. He said, well, now today, or every day, I come home every day after school, and I walk my dog, and at the end of the week, I get an allowance. And so it was, it was emerging to me and these same type of stories were universal throughout all the folks that we interviewed, is that there was a sense of independence and self-esteem that was being achieved because the children would be able to do these more nuanced things, not necessarily because they could walk faster in the six-minute walk test, but it was because they were they were a little bit stronger um, and, and had more endurance, and therefore um, where they were seeing benefit were in these other areas, like I said, anchored in independence and self-esteem. And that's something that nobody ever talks about, but is so important. How, how, did, I, the, I, how did the agency respond to your presentation? Uh, unanimously, they all said that we nailed it. It was a two-hour presentation that was presented on August 25th, 2015 at, at the agency. Um, they were emotionally moved in the room when they watched the children talk about their experience. Um, Janet, you know, congratulated us at the end of the meeting and said, we've been trying to get companies to do this for years. You guys finally did it. Um, so that, so that kind of evolved into the adcom. And so, uh, Janet came to me and said, I think it would be, um, I think what you did was great. I wish it was done under IRB. Um, so shortly thereafter, institutional review board. Yeah, yeah, because it was not done under IRB, so then it couldn't be part of their their review. But you know, at the time when we did it, we didn't know what we were going to get, and so even thinking about going through an IRB for something that we're not even sure what we're going to get was like fishing in a really large pond. You don't know if you're going to get a fish. Um, but but the outcome of that was I ended up going back to Sarepta and asking them if they wouldn't mind if I presented some of that data during the ADCOM. So they allowed me 10 minutes um, of their ADCOM time, and I presented some of those videos um, then. And my business partner, who now business partner, who was a colleague at the time, also a mom with a young man with Duchenne, um, she presented her own videos. And her own videos consisted of her son, who had she had picked what would be on the bleeding edge of something that he was about to lose physical activity to be able to do. And she had she had said to herself when she started the study, if this drug really works, I'm going to see it in this place. Now we call that caregiver choice in, in Casimir. So her caregiver choice is her son getting in and out of the car 
uh, it was specific enough where he, he was, uh, afraid to lose that ability because he was entering middle school. And there isn't a middle school little boy who wants to be picked up in and out of the car by his mom in front of all his peers. So that was like something that was on the bleeding edge. He, he had just lost the ability to get in and out of the car himself. And that was so bothersome to him and his family. He went on drugs. Mom took a video, um, at baseline, she took another video uh, three months later, six months later, and 18 months later. And it's very clear in the video that the child did not get in the car at baseline, but he does get in the car at three months with some difficulty. And then by six months, the child is able to get into the car um, almost like a normal child. And at 18 months, he's still able to get into the car. And so between the qualitative interviews that I did in Mindy's presentation of those quality of that quantified video, we were able, we, we then realized um, that it wasn't necessarily how fast the kids move, it's how they move, the ease of movement, and what type of compensatory factors that they have to use to achieve that movement that was changing in the study. This was a, a controversial approval for the FDA. Janet Woodcock, the director of the Office of Drug Evaluation pushed this through over the objections of staff who felt there was a lack of data to justify the decision. There were advocates like yourself who believed there was clear evidence of efficacy. What do you think it was that ultimately convinced Woodcock to take the action she did? Well, Janet had been privy to all of the videos um, during during my collection, so d during the study, when I was collecting those videos in that study, um, not only did she get to see the, the presentation on August 25th, um, but she had actually seen many of the videos that I brought back to the agency, um, you know, kind of in a, a more confidential way. But um, it was me kind of saying, hey, Janet, take a look at this. This is what's happening with the kids. Um, and, and, and I think that that, you know, that gave her enough context around a study that had a really bad design. And, you know, to, to say to herself, these keep the drug, it looks like the drug is working. It's not fair to the kids that they can't get it because, because the design was, was poor. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what kept things going. And then I think, you know, she needed some evidence. Um, so she went back into another study and she pulled out some dystrophin evidence um, that, that in her mind made it reasonably likely to, um, made it reasonably likely to, to approve that there was going to be clinical benefit because she, she was seeing it on the video. You founded Casimir Trials, a contract research organization founded to bring the patient experience and perspective to the drug development process. How did this experience lead to the formation of Casimir? Well, to be honest with you, it was a really brutal, not brutal, it was a really um, transparent and open discussion with Janet about what, what, what did we do that was helpful and what, did, what happened that wasn't helpful in this process. Um, and what was helpful was that we were able to collect some data and bring that data back to the agency um, that, that really gave that additional context about how the drug was working in the kids. But what was not helpful was that it was not done un, under IRB um, and it was retrospective. 
and and in many ways it wasn't quantifiable enough. It, it wasn't rigorous enough. And so um, she challenged us uh, as rare disease moms and, and people who have were the pioneers in this space. She challenged us to go do this and to start a company. And she challenged us to talk to rare disease companies to begin to collect this type of data um, and do it in a rigorous, quantifiable way. Um, and and so that was that's really how we started. But but the other reason why we started to do it wasn't just because we wanted to start a company or another business. We knew that other parents had experienced what we did in other rare diseases, where they knew a drug was working, but the, the study design wasn't designed properly enough or nuanced enough to capture the benefit that the patients might be seeing, and to live through that um, is, is really agonizing and horrible. And, you know, Mindy and I do not want another parent to have to live what, number one, with what we went through to get Jefferson reviewed, and number two, you can't imagine having a drug that you know is working and then having that taken away from you um, is, is just horrible. So so we went ahead and we, we looked at all the challenges there are in clinical trials and in rare disease, and we tried to knock everyone out of them. So... Things like going to clinic. And in our clinical studies, you don't have to go to clinic. You go to get your intervention, your interventional drug, but you can do all your remote captures at home in the privacy of your own home um, through a cell phone, through a mobile device. And every, everything is 21 CFR, 11 compliant, HIPAA compliant. Um, and, but, but, but we believe that you're going to get the best data that way. Um, I think it's, 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 it's very hard to believe that if you show up to clinic at 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning with a three- or four-year-old who has a rare disease that could have some communication issues with it or cognitive issues or behavioral issues, that you're going to get your best and most robust data on that day, right? That's kind of like the Wild West. Like you're hoping at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning your child's going to act their best, but you, you don't really know. But if you give parents the opportunity to do these types of captures at home, um, you know they're going to pick the best time and the best the best the best time of day and the best day to do those on, knowing their children and knowing their their child's schedule. What's the range of things customer does, and and who's the customer? So right now, most of our customers, most of our clients are um, small and large farmers in rare disease. The customer is a typically. Um, a client who is working in a rare disease where benefit has never been seen. It may have been suspected, but never actually seen. And therefore, um, we come in and do concept elicitation and a lot of qualitative work on the front end to determine what benefit it might actually look like that is meaningful to the patient. Remember, I started talking about the six-minute walk test. And, and we realize in Duchenne, what's, what's at the heart of disease in Duchenne is it's difficult to move. Therefore, a six-minute walk test, because children with Duchenne don't want to grow up to be speed walkers, isn't an appropriate endpoint for that group. But what is appropriate are, are things that, like I said, are anchored in independence. So if you're a non-ambulatory boy, um, something that's important to you is being able to get your arms back up on the armrest uh, should they fall off. Because if you can't get your arm back up in the armrest, then you can never be left alone again, even at the age of 17, 18, or 19 years old. 
that arm falls off, you can't get to your joystick. So, so our customers are those who understand that the patients need to identify what meaningful benefit looks like to them. Um, the, 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 that's the customer really that comes to us. And then we go out and do that qualitative work. Um, and then we work with the sponsor on, on a design study that works for both the patients, the caregivers, and the sponsor in the space. Um, and, and we somehow, after all of that work is done and the study is ongoing, um, we figure out how we're going to quantify those, those outcome measures. One of the things you're doing is trying to bring new data points and new measures into the process. You mentioned smartphones a, a moment ago. What role does technology play in all this, and is it allowing you to do things that might not have been easily done or even possible, say, 10 years ago? Absolutely. So technology is a big part of it, and, and up until just the last couple of years, I don't think we were using it as robustly as we could. Um, I think that the idea that you have to travel, perhaps on an airplane, that you go to a new city with a child with a rare disease, um, and you decide to, you know, make that trip a little bit better by getting pizza at the best pizza place in that town, and maybe going to the pool later and getting into bed a little bit later that night, only to arrive at a clinic at seven or eight o'clock the next morning. I think there's so many confounds. And the physical aspect of asking these kids to, to perform these tasks in clinic um, that we don't really think about it. Um, and I, I think that technology allows us to bridge over those confounds, get into these people's homes, set up the caregivers so they can take these videos, and then we can have physical therapists or KOLs uh, in this space look at those look at those videos and score them appropriately. Um, from time point A, time point B, time point C, time point D, and either see physical changes on them in them, or you can also do this with behavior. You know, we can we can see behavior or cognitive changes as well um, using video capture and, and using that remote access versus coming into a strange clinic with strange assessors. Um, again, you know, at at times of the day that that may not be best that child, that the, the sheer stress that our bodies, even our healthy bodies, go through when we have to get on an airplane and fly two to three hours from, from one place to another um, is incredible, right? We come off sometimes with swollen ankles and things like that. Well, you put a child whose mitochondria is already going crazy in their body or lack of, you know, whatever it might be. Um, that, that energy resource just gets sucked up when we're in the air. And then, like I said, we expect those kids to perform their best physical performance, our behavior, our cognitive performance, in clinic the next day. When you develop a, a novel outcome measure, what has to be done to validate it, and, and what's the discussion with regulators? Yeah, so um, a couple of different things. So many of our methodologies have already been validated um, just through studies themselves by doing, taking that, um, uh, taking the tools, um, and seeing what the utility is. And we've worked with some, um, valid, you know, validation companies to, to help us do that. Um, the other, the other way to validate things, such as scorecards, if you want to develop a, a scorecard to, um, 
to score those videos that you're seeing. Um, currently, we're we're in the quali- qualification program at FDA, and we worked closely with Critical Path to get there. Um, and then our scorecards will be used um, uh, in some studies, one that we're currently running ourselves, uh, but we'll use those scorecards in some studies to validate um, our, our findings. As you entered this world, what did you learn from your earlier experience with the FDA about having to develop data with rigor necessary to withstand regulatory scrutiny? So I think the one thing that I really learned is super important, um, and it's something that we don't always think about, is almost anything can be quantified. As long as you can prove that the methodology behind it is solid and it's reproducible, um, you 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 can quantify the way that a man combs his hair in the morning. You can comb it differently on month one versus month three, month or versus month six, and that you can take that same type of endpoint and you can put that over a number of different. You can put it in Huntington's disease. You can put it in Duchenne. You can put it in Alzheimer's. And I think that there's lots of things that are anchored, like I said, in independence, because that's, that's what we want to do. That's why we provide drugs to either rare disease or to provide drugs to people even with broader diseases. And so they can maintain independence. They can maintain going to work, going to school, um, maybe maintain driving a car, maintain the dignity of combing your own hair is really important. Um, and so I, I think what I learned is that we've got to think outside of these these really, um, you know, hard, hard endpoints, like a six-minute walk test or a four-stair climb. We've got to think for that in independence and how is that meaningful to the patient. And then, and then develop endpoints that are meaningful to the patient. And, and we've got to allow for, there has to be some flexibility in there for, um, heterogeneous populations. It's, it's not fair to say that every young man or every young girl with certain diseases, that they're going to progress all at the same time. We know, we know the progression is predictable, right? But it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's going to be all at the same time. While one child might lose ambulation at the age of 10, another child will lose ambulation at the age of 14. And, and now we see this over all the rare diseases that we work with. Um, we know they're going to lose ambulation, but it's going to be different times. And so we have to have studies designed that allow for that flexibility to happen. So, in, for instance, in Duchenne, oftentimes we'll have six prescribed activities or tasks that the participants are asked to do and caregivers will capture them through the mobile device. And if you have a group of four or five kids in that study, you might see two kids do better on the stairs and two kids do better getting up off the floor and one child, you know, another child doing better um, rolling over, right? But it's not that they all do better getting up the stairs or they all do better getting up off the floor. It's that they're doing better in, in some things, but maybe not all, but they're doing better in something. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, 
It's allowing for that flexibility for each child to be their own control or each patient to be their own control. We're not counting that all of them get up off the floor the same way. We're counting, number one, the way they in which they get up off the floor, but then they, they have other places where they can succeed within those prescribed tasks as well. The other thing that we do in Casimir, which is really different, is a caregiver choice video and a new activity video. So we believe oftentimes that the caregivers themselves will be able to identify, again, what is important to them. Um, and, and so we allow them to do that video capture kind of on their own. So for Mindy, like I said, it was her son getting in and out of the car. But for somebody else, it might be uh, their son getting in and out of their front door. Um, and we find that it's most often that caregiver choice is the one thing that the parent is looking at when they want to know if their child is getting worse than their disease, but it's also the one, if they're getting, if they're getting worse with stapling their disease, but it's also the one thing they turn away from when they don't want to know. So they'll watch something every single day to say, oh, he's getting kind of worse, he's getting kind of worse, that this is what's happening, but it's also the thing that a mom will say or dad will say, I just don't want to know today. I don't want to deal with it, so I'm going to turn away. So we believe that's the most sensitive thing to change over time um, because, that's again, that's going to be the one thing that parent is watching when a child goes into an interventional drug trial. The other thing we, we ask parents to do is something called a new ability video because we just heard time and time again kids that were in these interventional studies, um, they would come into clinic and say that, something new happened, like opening a bottle or opening a bag of chips or something like that, and there was no place for that site coordinator, patient coordinator, or the PI to record that new ability. And so that data just gets lost. And so those are the other two um, videos that we also capture, at least in the in the neuromuscular space and the in, in those diseases that where movement is is at the heart of the, of the disease. The tagline on your website is patient-centric can be more than a catchphrase. How seriously do you think drug makers and regulators take the notion of patient-centricity today? I think regulators are taking it very seriously. I think we've definitely seen a shift within the agency, um, especially since the, the, the approval of Exonda 61, um, where they, they, do, they, have, they are making these efforts to, to look at um, what are what's meaningful to patients. They are telling the sponsors. Um, they're asking the sponsors, where did you get this information? How did you pick this outcome measure? Um, so we're hearing this from sponsors, um, and everything that we attend for on the policy side of things, the regulatory side of things, we hear FDA saying it over and over again. And I think they're beginning to take it into practice, and I hope we have proof of that principle going forward when when um, some of our data is included in, in the briefing books and, and as, as part of the review process, and that's, that's our hope. Um, I think sponsors, you know, especially sponsors or industry partners who have been in the rare disease space and, and um, are closer to the patient advocacy groups and have heard or have seen some of the messy data that comes out when you kind of take that off-the-shelf type of um, outcome measure and try to apply it to a disease state. Um, so, you know, it's it's becoming much more common. Um, I think that, you know, they're beginning to realize that patient centricity isn't just giving a patient or a caregiver a survey while they're sitting in the waiting room about 
what their pain scale is today or how fatigued they were today. Um, you know, they're beginning to realize that you can't just ask somebody on a, on a, on a survey what their fatigue is. What, what does fatigue really mean? Um, there's actually, you know, more to it than that. And so the more conversations that we have with industry partners, the more times that we're able to get up and present our ideas and our thoughts, um, you know, there's a lot, always a lot of questions afterwards, but I think we're, I think we're pushing really hard and I think we're beginning to change the way that sponsors are, 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 are seeing things. And I, I think they're beginning to listen. We've been talking about the use of the type of patient-centric data you're trying to create for regulators to evaluate. I, I know we just had a, a public meeting with the Institute for Clinical Excellence uh, discussing the way they value Duchenne muscular dystrophy drugs. I know you were there. I'm wondering, do you see the type of data you're working on creating, helping to change the way payers think about the value of drugs? Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more heartbreaking, uh, especially for me and for Mindy, who worked so hard to ask FDA to review establishments to now hear that there are patients who can't get access to it because there is not enough clinical data there for the payers feel like they can justify that payment for the drug. And so that's heartbreaking. And so, yes, we are hearing from payers now who are um, are interested and, and willing to talk to us about the type of data that we're getting. Um, and, and so I'm hoping that, again, we can kind of shed some light on what's actually happening in the bodies of these children who are getting drugs and, and get access, you know, how work to help get them access. Um, I will say that uh, videos have been used, um, some of our more anecdotal videos. So, you know, at the beginning, two or three years ago, we were playing around with the concept to see um, what we could capture, when we could capture it, what type of SOPs we were going to need. And I would say probably three, we had at least three cases where those parents ended up having those videos and then taking those videos to their payers. Mindy, my partner, being one of those parents, and having their um, their denial overturned. And how's Jet doing? Uh, Jet's doing well. He is stable. Uh, he uh, he's doing well. He's stable, and I am I am what I consider one of the lucky ones. And so my mission in life and my job right now is to make sure that this doesn't happen to another family, and that um, if there's a chance that a drug works. Uh, we want to do everything we can to capture that data and then use it in a, in a, you know, for regulatory purposes and then if we need to use it for payer purposes. Christine McSherry, co-founder of Casimer Trials. Christine, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, 
on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.